Should we be getting a flu vaccine this year? Mm-hmm. And or should we be getting a flu vaccine every year? That's a legitimate question a lot of people yes. are pondering. Mm-hmm. Rapid antigen tests for three viruses in one approved by the TGA. Oh, hallelujah. I'm actually really excited by this. This is very it's, exciting. It's very nerdy, but I'm really excited by this. Meta hit with record-breaking 1.3 billion fine over Facebook data transfers to the US. 1.3 billion dollars. We can't control where our data is being stored, can we? No, we can't. The views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the values of our employees. So, Jack, first of all, Let's talk about that great jacket. It is a little flashy than my personal preference. I like it a little more muted. Mm -hmm. This is from a Japanese uh, maker. But I've been told that the Japanese artisans have imbued the diet to darken and enrich over time. I love this artisan culture. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it really... Such dedication to the craft. And that really appeals to our kind of uh, minutia-filled mindset as scientists kind of look at it. Well, how does the process work and what's the progression Mm -hmm. of the time and how Mm -hmm. do things change? Not many pleasures left in life at a certain age looking for (laughs) fancy jackets. Not since cutting sugar. It's been how long? It's been... I think 10 months since I cut cut sugar, Mm -hmm. 10 months. Mm -hmm. And I'm back to a full clean bill of health, Mm. I think. My doctor seemed okay with me. Fantastic. It's great news. You can never really impress your GP. You know, I don't think I impressed him, (laughs) but I think he wasn't displeased, let's say. so. You're probably a very compliant patient. Compliance is not always a good thing, but in this case, it turns Mm. out to have worked in my benefit. If it's your first time here, my name is Jack. I'm a microbiologist as well as a professor in an Australian university. And my name's Amanda. I work as a manager of clinical research. And on this podcast, we're exploring the intricate connections between science, technology, and productivity and careers, and how actually more and more things are more connected than we previously thought as the world tightens around us and everything seems to be focusing on the very similar themes. This is episode nine. Right. And mm-hmm. we are doing it as a fortnightly release schedule, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which works for us work schedule-wise, just barely. But I do concede it's not the greatest for growing an audience. Do you listen to many other podcasts apart from our own? I don't actually listen to a lot of podcasts at all. You don't even listen to our own podcast. <laughs> no, you do the editing. <laughs> yeah, I, I listen to it. But yeah, I don't know how many people subscribe to podcasts. Mm-hmm. But if you do subscribe to podcasts, you're kind of looking for it in your feed. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, oh, well, every Wednesday, every Wednesday and Friday, right. the professional podcasters release like three episodes a week. We're doing one a fortnight. Okay, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing our best here. Season one will conclude with uh, the next episode, although there may be a bonus episode we might release uh, along oh, the way. Bon- I didn't know about this. Okay. Yes, eventually would like to move to a weekly schedule how we'll get there is to be determined i'm not really sure how i'm going to make it work what that will mean is we'll need to take a bit of a break between season one and two to have enough episodes in a backlog to meet that weekly delivery schedule right into your feeds that's the aim overall hopefully we can manage it you know it's ambitious with our respective Mm -hmm. jobs being pretty demanding to do this podcast endeavor we have to give it a chance of growing and and being more consistent and i have to try and get my hands on some prime for next episode well we might no luck we might need that full season break to find it it could be this time next year we talk about many different news articles and see how these headlines inform public consciousness 
consciousness around science as well as really our own consciousness around science because <laughs> a lot of it is news, not just in the headlines, it's news very much to me. It's really interesting. Have you had a, do you think, a positive learning experience from doing this podcast? As a lifelong educator, mm-hmm. my standard go-to line is any learning experience is a positive one <laughs> if you look over a long enough period of time. Short term, I have to say, it's been very intellectually stimulating. Mm-hmm. So everything's kind of interesting if you dig enough and everything is actually quite connected in way more ways than we thought. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've actually had a couple of experiences where something that we've discussed on the podcast has been relevant in my day-to-day job, which has been really interesting. You wouldn't necessarily think so, but it's had some kind of connection. Idea of doing this as a fortnightly or mm-hmm. weekly endeavor mm-hmm. is that it's a virtuous cycle. The more we read, the more we will touch upon things we know a bit more about because we've been doing that reading. <laughs> we hope. In theory, <laughs> we hope. which brings us to the first segment of the podcast, The Connect, where we explore issues and headlines that we've mm-hmm. already covered previously, but there's been a new development that has made headlines yet again. Mm -hmm. And the first article today is from The Conversation. The World Health Organization says we shouldn't bother with artificial sweeteners for weight loss or health. Is sugar better? On a previous episode of the podcast, we talked about the artificial sweetener erythritol, Mm -hmm. which has been linked to... Increase risk of clotting. Clotting specifically. Mm, so cardiovascular risk. Artificial sweeteners as a whole, not necessarily bad, but erythritol, which is a type of artificial sweetener, has been linked to blood clotting disorders. That's correct. Or an mm. increased risk That's right. of blood clotting factors. Mm-hmm. And now the WHO on top of that has launched this a finding which is kind of like a meta-analysis where they looked across mm, all the right. studies into artificial mm-hmm. sweeteners mm-hmm. to make a comment to say, look, is it a suitable replacement for weight loss or your health overall? And the systematic review here is quite interesting because what they did was they looked at very specific subsets of studies into artificial sweeteners and their effect on health, randomized control trials, prospective cohort studies, and case control studies. You're a manager of clinical research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you walk me through what these trials are supposed to represent very quickly? (laughs) Very Very quickly. 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 So randomized control is when you have a number of different groups and there's some kind of intervention that's happening, being treated or being given some kind of supplement versus a group that's not. And the participants are randomly assigned to the different groups. Hence, randomized control. That's right. I'm starting to get it. Okay, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Prospective cohort studies, what is that? So that's when they're looking at a particular risk factor in a a cohort or a group of people. And then you can make some kind of educated guesses, but you can't necessarily make a causal association. So, I mean, the big one here is when we talk about smoking and lung cancer, it's not really ethical to have people in a study smoke a bunch of cigarettes and uh, see if down the track they develop lung cancer. It's more that you would study a cohort of people containing smokers and non-smokers and then look over time if they're more at risk of developing uh, those particular cancers, for example. Can't say causally exactly, but we can make a very educated guess that there's likely a link between the things that we're investigating. So the groups are not randomised. That's right. You go into looking for these cohorts. Mm-hmm. You try and control for all the variables as best you can. That's right. And it's it can be difficult to do across a group of people. They're not the same. You'll have a number of different factors. And while you try and control for them all, you may not be able to control for everything or there might be a particular variable or, or difference between the groups that you may not have accounted for. 10 out of 10, you've explained the first two really <laughs> well. Case control studies, according to this article, another type of 
observational study that follows two groups of otherwise matched people. Aside from the risk factor of interest, the risk factor of interest here is artificial sweetener intake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. So I, I guess a little bit more controlled than prospective cohort studies. Yeah, that's right. But I guess the downside is you probably don't have as many people on average in those cohorts because you have to hand select them and control for all of these different things. The only one out of these three types of studies that gives you a more causal connection mm-hmm. between risk factor and health is the randomized control. That's right. They looked at all of these different studies and concluded a few things. The first thing they concluded, there was a slight decrease in weight for That's those right. who were mm-hmm. taking artificial mm-hmm. sweeteners. But it's not dramatic. It's like less than a kilo yeah. on, on average. No, right? Not a huge difference. Mm-hmm. With a large or reasonable amount of variation mm-hmm. within that uh, less than one kilogram weight loss mm-hmm. difference. All of the other studies are not uh, definitive in terms mm-hmm. of the benefit they may have, but in terms of the negative downsides that taking artificial sweeteners over a long period of time, I think there was a more significant findings. You can pretty much be at higher risk of obesity and diabetes if you intake artificial sweeteners mm-hmm. regularly. Mm-hmm. Even if it's to replace sugar, your risk factors don't necessarily go down. Yeah, right. That's right. So this kind of confirms what we suspected, or what I suspected, that there is actually a cost that we're paying. <laughs> Fun cannot be for free yeah. in this world. Yeah. And artificial sweeteners can actually be insanely sweet to the taste bud. Well, yeah, a lot of them are hundreds of times sweeter than, than sugar. They were still saying that there's benefits for people with diabetes to be using artificial sweeteners where they need to for diabetics within the study that it wasn't affecting them in the same way. Yes, they say mm. this recommendation where you shouldn't use artificial mm. sweeteners in place of sugar for health and weight loss mm-hmm. does not extend towards people with diabetes because yep, that's, that's a separate right. category and it's not universal to say, hey, if you're diabetic, then go not to artificial mm-hmm. sweeteners. It's mm-hmm. more, if you're diabetic, then a more nuanced case-by-case yep. recommendation from your doctor mm-hmm. is, is more appropriate. Mm-hmm. The next article connect is about both TikTok mm-hmm. as well as vaping. And of course, the intersection between those two things tends to be young people, our third pillar of discussion <laughs> on this podcast. And the headline is again from the conversation. TikTok promotes vaping as a fun, safe and socially accepted pastime and omits the harms. When I see this headline, I am not surprised. I think the interesting part of this is that it represents a study that was done by a research group where mm-hmm. they actually examined a lot of TikTok videos That's right. mm-hmm. featuring these vaping behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even notice because I'm clearly not hip and happening. Except the, for your jacket, except, which is very cool. My jacket is the brightest and most vibrant part of me. <laughs> and there are vaping tricks. Smoke rings. Or yeah, something. so they okay. make different smoke, different mm. shapes with the smoke right. exhaling, which look kind of cool on video. Okay. And looking kind of cool is the litmus test for TikTok. Mm. If it looks kind of cool and it loops, I guess you can make the smoke patterns look like they're playing a rewind or something. I can see it when it loops, like maybe it'll like come in and out. Oh, and right. It looks very visually alluring. Yeah. And then TikTok's algorithm isn't necessarily rewarding vaping. It's mm-hmm. just, oh, it looks cool. Mm-hmm. Keep promoting it. Yeah. Young people watch it. Keep promoting it. And yeah. it just keeps on being fed into the algorithm. Like any algorithm, I think it's platform agnostic. Mm-hmm. If people are engaged by it or promote it, indirect consequence of that is it really emphasizes all the videos that make vaping seem glamorous and fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the down of videos that talk about how bad vaping is. Let me guess, they weren't popular. They weren't popular. Mm-hmm. If it was like a doctor giving you a stern talking to, I don't know about these videos. Or maybe just like us, not as much Two scientists complaining about young people vaping. Vaping, uh, in the algorithm moment. hates us already. How is this not cool? Two scientists talking about the dangers of vaping. Well, I can tell you for a fact that that specific video got no traction at all. So it's not hypothetical. Oh, you did a 
short clip on it, didn't you? Yeah, I've been making a lot of shorts based on yeah. the podcast. And how did it go? I don't want to curse us in case it somehow picks up traction later down the line. But we tend to get hundreds to thousands of views mm-hmm. for video, mm-hmm. not hundreds of thousands of views. Yes, right? sure. I was watching a clip of a comedian. He was saying like, oh, well, you know, my TikToks were only getting a couple of hundred thousand views. And then something happened and I started getting 40 million views. A couple of hundred thousand views for a <laughs> <Amazing>. TikTok. <laughs> First of all, what were you saying? That's mm-hmm. that compelling to mm-hmm. get that. But then that was viewed as a, as a low barometer. It's all relative on this platform, right? So, um, let's compare it to how the jacket does. <laughs> we're putting a lot of a lot of hope on this jacket. I don't think it's going <laughs> to do the heavy lifting for scientific integrity and intellectual insight. I don't think that's quite its intent. Back to the study. They mm-hmm. found mm-hmm. 98% of videos about vaping on TikTok mm-hmm. in English language. Okay, yep. 264 English language videos about vaping mm-hmm. portrayed e-cigarettes in a positive, right. fun, exuberant, inspiring light. Okay. And the flip side of that is that if you have vaping in the video and it is promoting purchasing it, it's currently against Australian mm-hmm. regulations to mm-hmm. do so. So then in turn, that would violate TikTok's content policy. Right. Mm-hmm. But they have been pulled down. Yeah. Regulating this is really hard. Because why would they? Every platform and has a difficulty with regulation. Even mm. if they were fined, I doubt it would be a blip in the ocean. Yeah. Mm. And, and again, I'm sure these videos were very popular, but mm-hmm. maybe not the most popular. And this is a very, very small slice of their overall pine. Okay. That brings us to our review of all the articles around the net in the next segment, mm-hmm. The Circuit. And the first article is the one I consider leading this week with because mm-hmm. it is a big news story, but maybe it isn't. And the maybe it isn't part I'll get to in a second. Meta hit with record-breaking 1.3 billion fine over Facebook data transfers to the US. $1.3 billion. Mm -hmm. I believe that's US dollars. I think it was 1.2 billion euro Mm -hmm. uh, because this is a fine coming from the European Union. That's right. And the EU has very, very strict regulations around their privacy laws, don't they? 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. This is- uh, From 2013. The initial inciting incident was Edward Snowden. Right. When he made his data leaks Mm -hmm. in 2013 about how the U.S. surveillance program manages data of uh, countries that it may or may not be allied with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uses that and incorporates it as part of its surveillance program for national security or other purposes. The EU is understandably quite uncomfortable with their citizens' data being stored in the U.S. because if it's stored in the U.S., according to Edward Snowden, mm. they're going to be able to, if not by default, Mm -hmm. request access to that data Mm -hmm. and do some deep dive on whether those citizens are guilty of certain crimes or are at risk of committing some kind of felony. They are able to do that kind of work and they do it routinely. The main sticking point here was that Meta or Facebook is one of the biggest platforms in the world. So it would have access to a huge amount of user data. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they were going back and forth trying to negotiate with the EU to say, look, we do need to store the data in the US because our government has a certain legislation. If we're based in the US, then we have to comply with that legislation. (laughs) If you are not going to let us do that, then we're going to pull our platform out of the EU and not Mm -hmm. let your users have the fun that is meta, the exhilaration that is using Facebook, all right? Uh, a little facetious there. Even with a fine, it's not going to make much difference. Maybe not that big a deal or maybe not that big a story after Unfortunately. I mean, it should be, but uh, they're, they're a huge company. $1.3 billion is a nothing. lot 
to mm-hmm. most people, but mm-hmm. to them it is a very, very small fraction, mm-hmm. even as they continue laying off staff and their profits go down and up. But 1.3 billion isn't actually going to make that much difference to them, and, and assuming that they don't appeal and get a lot of that. Back and forth. Back and forth. So It drags it out for years more. So I don't think it's going to make that much difference to Facebook, but it does have some interesting ramifications for us as the end user because we can't control where our data is being stored can we no we can't in a lot of cases we don't know where it's being stored yeah so i didn't even know that this was a regulation of facebook they know my data is being stored in the u.s we are in australia mm-hmm. we I'm are assuming not- it's the same same thing same case same mm. case we're kind of stuck in no man's that because if we're not on these platforms then we are quite disconnected from the online conversation mm-hmm. and that might be a good thing But if you're trying to, say, grow a podcast or produce educational content, you need global reach. You need to be in the loop, don't you? Yeah. It's a difficult situation to be in. And I'm actually Mm. in a very specific predicament because I don't know how much more I should keep using a platform like TikTok. (laughs) I don't actually use Facebook that much for this Mm. content, but I do publish this content on YouTube, on Mm -hmm. Instagram, and on TikTok. But TikTok is getting banned in quite a lot of places. And in the US, a couple of states have banned it already, I believe. In Australia, we're constantly having conversations Mm -hmm. around banning Mm -hmm. TikTok. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what what do I do? What what is your most used platform, do you think? Personally, I use YouTube the most. Mm. Yeah, I consume a lot Mm -hmm. of YouTube content. Mm -hmm. I publish videos on YouTube a lot. Yeah, Uh, It's probably by far the most common platform. What about you? Uh, For me, Instagram. Instagram. Mm. And Instagram is is meta, so you definitely don't have a choice. That's right, I don't publish, but I I do enjoy Instagram scroll we just don't have control as the end user of what happens to our data and we've covered previously all of these data hacks and Mm -hmm. data leaks of these big companies the hackers aren't going to go for our individual accounts they're going to go for the big companies and where they store their data is apparently not up to us not even up to us. i mean i wouldn't even want to know it would be scary to know i saw a news article the other day where i think you could put in your a few details and it would give you an idea of what it can piece together about uh, details on you and I was too scared to even look at it. Not to mention that I didn't want to put my details in it in the first no, place. No, but that's it's a bit redundant. Was it a news case. article? <laughs> Please enter your PIN and your social security number. I want to say it was on ABC News. Okay, not on like ABD News. Or something like that, no. <laughs> you got to be careful. Of course, facsimile of ABC, ABD, <laughs> ABD News. Do you remember, uh, it was a few years ago where you just started getting an email from every single online store you've ever bought anything from telling you that we need to comply with new EU legislation and if you want to keep receiving emails from us mm-hmm. you need to like consent to it. did you do you remember that period of time I don't remember that at all you don't remember I have, that at I have all. zero recollection maybe I do more online <laughs> shopping yeah, yeah, of, of, fancy of fancy indigo jackets, jackets than you do that flurry of mm. emails came because of this piece of legislation that mm. was brought in the GDPR General Data Protection Regulation General Data Protection Regulation. And this is what led to Facebook having to pay that $1.3 billion fine. The same thing that these e-commerce sites selling jackets overseas were (laughs) worried about keeping my details on their server that's not based in the country. It's the same reason that Facebook got $1.3 billion. The thesis of this regulation is that the citizens should have a right to not have their data stored Mm -hmm. by the person who is requesting that data. So even Mm -hmm. if you need a data to process a transaction... Mm -hmm you should have the right to not have that stored indefinitely on someone's server. I do feel like often data is collected that these stores really don't need. I mean, you get so many spam phone calls now and emails and when I'm asked every time to put in my mobile phone number, why do you really need that? Mm. And when we go and check out our grocery stores and supermarkets, mm-hmm. they ask for your postcode. 
I'm always curious what happens to your postcode. IKEA do that, don't they? Mm. IKEA do it. Mm -hmm. Grocery stores do it. They could see how far you've traveled to maybe attend to to, to visit that grocery store and then Coles, Woolies, Woolies to go to supermarket. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a bit of digging. I'm sure it's for a very specific reason, a very insidious reason that they're collecting postcodes. And we'll find out in our last episode of the season. Do you remember a couple of years ago there was that article? I think it was was it Target or Walmart in the US? Uh, supposedly predicted someone was pregnant before they knew themselves. They predicted a family's uh, teenage daughter was Mm. pregnant Mm -hmm. before the family knew and before the teenage girl knew because of the type of products that they were buying. That's right. Was aggregated with pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But it was strange things that were aggregated. It wasn't like pregnancy It wasn't like prenatal vitamins. (laughs) It was like obvious. It was was like certain types of uh, shampoos or or certain kind of dolls. It was something something weird. I remember being like shocked at the time, but now I just kind of go, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, of course. You should have (laughs) predicted my pregnancy before I even started trying. Like it should be more predictive. And that brings us to crossover the week, Mm -hmm. our recurring segment where we look at the biggest stories in science, news and tech and try and weave together the thread, which is turning out to be much easier to do in this day and age. In Australia, we are currently about to enter flu season. So the crux of the crossover of the week this week is, should we be getting a flu vaccine Mm -hmm. this year? Mm -hmm. And or should we be getting a flu vaccine every year? That's a legitimate question a lot of people are pondering. Mm -hmm. Not within my community of microbiologists who are all hardline. I go get the flu shot first time, first week is available. We have it through work. work We do as well. As Mm -hmm. vaccines. And I went to line up on the very, very first day, the very first time slot. It was just like a parade of microbiologists. (laughs) It was just like every single scientist (laughs) in the university is in the very, very first opening of the flu vaccine. (laughs) So it's actually hard to get a read of it in my immediate Mm day-to-day surroundings. Mm-hmm. Is that your experience as well, your work? Yeah, people are generally pretty happy to have it. But then I have some people on my floor who just say that they don't really get it. They don't bother. We're trying to step outside of our immediate mm. sphere where everyone by the fold is, let's just go get the vaccine. Of course mm-hmm. you do. So before we dive into the article, yeah. let's talk through a few off-the-cuff anecdotal mm-hmm. reasons that you've heard people tell you. Yeah. They don't think it's worth their time. Whenever I get the flu vaccine, I get really sick. Mm-hmm. I've heard that one an awful lot. Look, you know, funnily enough, it often happens to me. It's just not from the flu vaccine. You remain you undeterred. Yeah. <laughs> you can't catch the flu from the flu vaccine. Yeah, it's just stimulating an immune response. You know, there's a lot of other viruses and other things circulating around, or you may have a few symptoms from the vaccine. You may have like mild symptoms that come up as a result of the vaccine, and you know, that's that's why you're experiencing it. And it might just be the time of year. But anecdotally, you know, it happens to me too. So that's one reason. I get the going. flu vaccine and I get the flu anyway it's not very effective Mm -hmm. it doesn't protect me so what's the point whenever i get the flu vaccine i feel really sick Mm -hmm. second one when i get the flu vaccine i get the flu anyway Mm -hmm. and the third one is i got the flu vaccine last year i don't know why i have to keep getting this vaccine every single year again we're not trying to debunk these myths we're not like myth busters or anything i don't actually think myth busters is that productive for the scientific dialogue idea that there are so many myths out there that you can just very easily bust Mm -hmm. is not conducive to productive long-term dialogue science it's a bit of a violent show wasn't it they're always blowing things up and well it's amazing how many myths need to be physically busted uh but yeah there were a lot of things that were blowing up and explosions maybe maybe that made for good tv i guess it would so i get the flu shot 
and I feel very sick. Mm-hmm. You've alluded to it earlier, but flu season is usually when people get the flu vaccine. That's right. And it's called flu season for a reason, mm-hmm. but it's not just flu that is very dominant during flu season. It is the common cold, which yep. is most commonly a, a rhinovirus, mm-hmm. a different class of virus that the influence of virus vaccine does not protect mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. it could also be rsv respiratory syncytial virus and yeah. the very common respiratory tract infection just as dire in terms of the symptoms as very very dangerous in particular for children in, mm. in many cases mm. so when you get a vaccine your immune system is triggered to respond to what you've been vaccinated against but mm-hmm. maybe in turn it's a little run down anyway it's very cold and the other circulating viruses the other circulating diseases you may catch those with or without the vaccine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but maybe when you get the vaccine in australia that time is a bit cold people are closer together they just these viruses are circulating more in the community yes and the mm. cold snap in australia is pretty sudden so yeah. people might not be ready for it maybe their window closed not to mention that back. you can get mild symptoms from having the vaccination itself injection site soreness a bit of fever but really it shouldn't be the flu that you get when you get the flu vaccine i have the flu vaccine and i catch the flu anyway the efficacy rate for the flu vaccine is not a hundred percent and the reason for that is because there are many different types of influenza virus and the conversation article has this diagram of the influenza virus particle and it really shows you different layers of molecular components within an influenza virus particle and the two key things here to pay attention to are the H and the N. So the H is for hemagglutinin and the N is for neuraminidase. Both the H and the N are external. They're sticking out Mm -hmm. out of surface of the viral particle, but they are not universal in their structure. They can change into a lot of different morphotypes. That's right. And that is the reason for the different variants or subtypes of influenza every year. They just need to change a little bit of their H or N residues. And all of a sudden, the immune system no longer recognizes it. Mm -hmm. Last year's vaccine no longer works as effectively. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to something as simple as changing the H and the N residues. Because it's what's on the outside of the virus that's recognized by the immune system. So if that changes then the immune system may not be able to recognize it as well. There is a breakdown of what this year's flu vaccine is specifically protecting against Mm -hmm. in this article. This has four, it looks like. So an H1N1, an H3N2. It's called a Victoria lineage-like virus and a Yamagata lineage-like virus. Thankfully, most of us don't have to know it to this level Mm -hmm. of detail before we go in and get the flu vaccine. But pretty much there's influenza A, and B, the vaccine can be either one. Mm-hmm. And also there's a naming system where it tells you the place in which it was first isolated. The four strains here, Sydney, Darwin, Austria, and Phuket. Presumably if you get the influenza vaccine this time of year in a different part of the world, the strains will be different. Mm-hmm. And the last part is year that it was isolated as well as the virus subtype. So you really get into the weeds here, but pretty much I guess you need to know, is it influenza A or B? Mm-hmm. And the vaccines will protect against strains from both influenza A and influenza B isolated in regions closest to where we are located in the world. And it's really their best prediction at the time of what they think will be the dominant strains. It may not come to fruition quite like that. So hence the differences in effectiveness you might get with different vaccinations. The estimation here is that flu vaccine limits your chance of catching the flu or serious symptoms emerging from flu infections by 30 to 60%. Mm -hmm. Which means that is a positive step, but it's not 100% protection. No. It is still possible to catch the flu after the flu vaccine Mm -hmm. if the flu strain that you catch is not one of these four. 
Absolutely. I caught the flu last year and I had the flu vaccine. It was a lot later in the year, so perhaps my immunity had waned somewhat as well. I think I had the flu in November last year and I would have had the vaccination around early May. So quite a bit of time difference. Right. And its effectiveness does wear off over time as well. And the article does go through and answer a few more of these mm. questions, which I encourage everyone to go and read. It is from the conversation, the most common side effects and the amount of efficacy a flu vaccine can actually mm -hmm. give you in terms of protection. And the best time to get your flu shot is when your immunity is going to peak. That's mm -hmm. how you reverse calculate it. That's right. So in Australia, we hit our peak cold in about june late april early may is kind of their recommendation to say well that's probably a good time to get the vaccine and having that coverage over the cold season when it does tend to spread more just often due to proximity of people to each other yes your immunity does wane over time mm -hmm. and or the longer you wait the more likely that the strain of influenza circulating is not going to be one of the four or five that's within that year's vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's right. But my thought on this is that look, if I get the vaccine every single year, mm -hmm. assuming I don't have any other risk factor that prevents, prevents me from you. getting the vaccine, I think there are people with like egg allergies and you have to get a different version of the vaccine that's egg free, catering to older people with lower immunity and get an extra strong version of the flu vaccine. So all things equal, I'll try and get the vaccine every year mm -hmm. and hopefully the number of strains that are protected against over time tally up so that this year's vaccine will not just protect me from this year but maybe the off chance i catch a, a random strain next year mm -hmm. that's kind of my approach to it and uh this is actually a really informative article i thought it was quite a good read and i know we always plug the conversation but i'm just going to plug it here again and say very useful news outlet it's written by experts within the field and they're more of a long-form news article where you can delve a little bit more into a subject it's, it's quite informative there's a lot of great science related topics covered on here it's not a finger wagging type of article mm. I, I find some, mm -hmm. some of them can but this one is not no and i think this is damaged a lot of uh, general public relationships between scientists and the the communities vaccine save lives don't be dumb i think that approach as tempting as it is to engage in that diatribe has not proven to be effective vaccinophobia is more prevalent than it's ever been it's not a helpful approach we need to be having conversations about this and i think this piece does start that and mm -hmm. break it down pretty logically mm -hmm. pretty systematically we are very much for vaccinations on this podcast especially the flu vaccine if i can avoid catching the influenza virus and uh, go back to work much more quickly, I would take that option every you know, single time. You know, and it's time. about protecting the vulnerable members of our community as well and reducing the risk that we spread to them as well. And on that point of reducing risk, there is good news on the innovation front in terms of diagnostic testing. In Australia, the Therapeutic Goods Administration has just approved a RAT test, a rapid antigen test, something that we're all too familiar with, a little uh, white thing that you peel off in a case and then you drip a bit of your nose aspirate into it and then a number of lines tells you if you've got nose pregnancy no it tells you if you've caught some kind of disease and we're all too familiar with the rat test what is this new version of the rat test going to do rapid antigen test for three viruses in one approved by the tga oh hallelujah i'm actually really excited by this this is very it's, exciting it's very nerdy but i'm really excited by this the rat test we're familiar with mm -hmm. is the one that we did for covid mm -hmm. are there any other popular versions of rat tests other than the one for covid not really i mean i have heard talk about a flu and covid test combined but i don't know if that was available in australia the three viruses that are going to be in this triple rat test is influenza a mm -hmm. slash b mm -hmm. covid 
yep. as well as RSV. Okay, now, RSV is the thing I'm most excited about because that is the one that you don't realize how bad it is until your bub has like pneumonia. Very, very dangerous virus potentially, especially in young children. So I, th- I think this is great. A lot of uh, RSV mm. hospitalizations. You think mm-hmm. it's a common cold, you keep waiting, it never gets better, transforms from an upper to a lower respiratory tract infection, more serious, and you lose weeks of health at a time. Being able to test yourself and know the potential severity of something that, you know, it's not just a cold, it's, it's important and potentially very practical and helpful health move here. Three in one. That's great. Three in one. I'm so excited. You know what? I wish they just swabbed every child at daycare before they went in, but that's me dreaming. <laughs> they do like a quintuple rat test for every, every child that goes through. It's not hard to get nasal aspirates from so, kids when they're dripping from their nose every single time. My trick to this is to cut that swab down because a very long skewer-like swab that comes with a kid is very scary looking to a child. But a smaller cotton tip appearing swap is a little bit less scary to my child. And Mm. also when they were first doing these tests at Mm. the testing clinics for COVID, they absolutely insisted on shoving that swab so far up. No, no, no. It's not going to work unless it's like literally at your brainstem. (laughs) And I've done my own COVID test. It does not need to go that far in, okay? Composite result can just be a perfectly comfortable amount of nasal aggression. gentle tickle. They were like, no, no, no. Unless I draw blood, I'm not uh, doing my job Blood can affect the the accuracy of the test. Yeah. You you don't want to do that, but but then if you go as far as they want you to, it's a problem. Yeah. I, I do vividly remember one stage where get a text message from my friends. I'm, I'm of a certain age where a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues are having children. I'd received this text message with two lines on it and I knew it was either someone had COVID or they were pregnant. Or both. Or the, the pregnant and the Or both, right? Yeah. And like, which one will it be today? <laughs> it's a rat roulette. I'm clearly in a different demographic to you because no one sends me pictures of their ELISA tests. We do have ELISAs in our teaching laboratories. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of ELISAs, mm-hmm. but no one takes pictures of them and circulates it on social okay. media. Actually, I have seen on Twitter, I've got this much due, I've got to do this and do this by this time. And then I'll also image of a rat test to kind of say, look, this is the cherry on top of the workload that's okay. endemic in our mm, workforce. So right. we're known for having a bit of a whinge every now so and then. So don't ask for your assignment back. And all the struggles and tensions that are inherent within academia brings me to the last segment of today. Whose job is it anyway? Our recurring segment talking about employability mm-hmm. and how we approach our different professional environments and how to develop transferable skills adaptable across any profession because we never know if our days are going to be numbered in our current mm-hmm. profession. And this article is around passive aggressiveness. Avoid these five phrases that make you sound passive aggressive. Here's how successful people communicate. Do you do these email faux pas? Mm. Before we look at the actual email faux pas, mm-hmm. what are your pet peeves with email etiquette? Either you've done yourself and then realize later you shouldn't be doing it and or other people do to you routinely. Without revealing your sources, any general email pet peeves you have. As per my previous email. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So this is like bingo. We're going to see if any yeah. of these appear. Written that yourself to other people? No, as I per my previous think it's a bit rude. A bit mm. rude. None of it is outright rude. It's just a little hint of... Uh, it's hard because sometimes it is as per your previous email and how else do you phrase that? Right. So... Right. And sometimes mm. it will do take forever to get back to you. Yeah. I have to say, if I'm receiving that, then it's on me because... I've made some kind of error. I'm not that offended by it. Okay, but there could be people who find that very offensive. It can be a bit passive-aggressive. It's not my pet peeve, Mm -hmm. but a salutation of 
hate is many, many professors' number one pet peeve. This is horrible, and I never receive emails that start with hey. Oh, mm. So you think this is horrible? Because I'm yeah. a bit mixed on it. A lot of these are coming from students, right? So students say, hey, Agreed. professor. Mm. Hey, Jack. It's very informal. I feel like hey is more informal than hi. If it's said hi, Jack, or hi, professor, then I would find that much more polite. You're exactly the same vintage as many of the professors who are finding this offensive mm-hmm. because hi is not offensive in the least. A hey is one bridge too far. <laughs> I Just agree with them. How much more <laughs> dignity do I have to lose before people start respecting me and start saying hi instead of hey? Just it's gonna, very common. It's a bit too familiar. Hey, so mm. that's a very common. It's not it's mm. not my personal pet peeve. Mm-hmm. I've gotten used to it. Students do say hey all the time. Mm-hmm. I do educate them to say there is somehow an invisible rumpled line between <laughs> hey and hi that we must hold in academia. We do not accept <laughs> hey. We will begrudgingly be okay with hi. The general order of for it for me would be to be very, very formal. Then once they respond, if they just sign off with their name, which I mean, they wouldn't sign off with their title usually, then that allows a bit more informal communication. Be like, dear professor, such and such. And then hi, first name in the response as you go back and forth. So I feel like this is a sort of unspoken etiquette in how to do it. And I have heard it's very different for international students coming to Australia because right. a lot of international students come from a culture where it's very hierarchical mm-hmm. compared to Australia mm-hmm. and they have to address their superiors as sir or madam mm-hmm. and be very, very ultra polite. Mm-hmm. But in Australia, we find that very off-putting as superiors. The first thing we'll say is don't call me professor, call me Jack. We're we're very comfortable with first name basis. Mm -hmm. And when those ropes of etiquette start getting untangled, an international student doesn't know where it stops. Well, I'll tell you where it stops. It stops with hey. (laughs) That's where it stops. That's the line. You know, I can see how the mistake would be made though. If if English isn't your first language, these, you know, slight subtle differences between hey and hi, they're not that clear. The last faux part we'll talk Mm -hmm. about from our own experiences before we launch the article Mm -hmm. is the very, very tiny microaggression that is regards, not kind regards. <laughs> to really let them know you mean business. What's your sign off on an email usually? It is always kind regards. Right. I have it built into my email signature. So I never am tempted to be less formal or more formal. It's always kind regards. Mine is usually sincerely. A lot of people like to say cheers. Sure. What are we cheering to exactly? More work. It's more not technically like cheery. To more work. Not very cheery. And then a little dash and A for Amanda. Oh, you, really you do A, really? A. The I'm a single busy letter. <laughs> a. Just have an auto signature, write your full name. Just how, how mysterious do you need to be? A. Well, the signature still goes on there. But yeah, so an A at the bottom and then my full email signature. I didn't mm. know that about you. I'm going to judge you a little bit more carefully oh, from this point. I'll okay. just sign off with A. Actually, I don't think I've received an email from you where you've signed off A. No. We're not that familiar, apparently. No, we're not. I'm not at that level of intimacy. No, I will address you as Professor in the first email to you. But hey, Professor. <laughs> Hey, Professor. No, hi, Professor. These are the five email faux pas that they say are the most common. There's a bingo. You've picked one per my last email. Yes, that is okay. quite pass- passive aggressive. So it's right there, right at the top. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of mine made the list. For future reference, it says the subtext of that is, let me correct your blatant mistake that you should have already known was wrong. I don't think that one's that rude. I don't really say it, but if I received that, I wouldn't be offended. Okay. But if you're going to include this in your future email for mm-hmm. future reference... I'd be like, thanks for helping me out for next time. Be a bit more cautious in Mm. in writing this to superiors. They might think you are accusing them of not knowing something in time. Bumping this to the top of your inbox. I've never seen that. I've never received that one. (laughs) I don't need anything bumped in my inbox. 
No, inbox bumping. <laughs> what it actually means, you're my boss. This is the third time I've asked you, I need you to get this done. Like I've never received that. I'm hoping I never do receive that, nor will I be bumping anything to anyone's inboxes. Maybe we're in a minority, okay? Mm. Please leave a comment down below or let us know if you are constantly having things bumped to the top of your inbox. Just to be sure we're on the same page. Just to be sure we're on the same page. Have you used that one before? Mm, I've received it, but maybe. I don't really use it. It says the implication here is I'm going to cover my butt here and make sure that everyone who refers <laughs> to this email in the future knows that I was right all along. Okay. Last one, going forward, dot, 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 and it actually means do not ever do that again. Mm. I'm not that offended by that either. I would use that, but it would be in the context of going forward, why don't we try or let's do this mm. as more of a collaborative effort. Well, this has been flagged on a pretty big outlet as mm. an email faux pas. So even if it's not an email faux pas in the past, now that it's been flagged and you use it, people might have read this article and said, oh, hold on. Okay. Has Amanda read the most common email passive aggressive <laughs> faux pas article? She's so behind the time. I'm going to email her and say, for future reference, <laughs> please refer to this article around email faux pas. Just to make sure we're on the same page. Per my last email, Amanda. Ooh. Going forward, I want you to make sure we're on the same page. But if you sign off with Jay, it'll be fine. I'm not going to sign up any email with Jay. No <laughs> one is familiar. <laughs> no one is so familiar that I'm going to give him a single initial. Right? No one. I err on the side of probably a little bit too polite in my emails. Okay. I don't think good manners can do any harm. I agree. And often, you know, you're asking for, some, for something, so why not be polite about it. What I will say though is that brevity is undervalued because yeah. if you write a lot of text, that's not that polite either. You ask them to read it. So what I always do is I write the full email and I'm also erring on the side of being more polite. I try and go back and cut out 30% of the email if I can. If mm -hmm. I can still get that message across in 50 to 60% of the original text, that's the ultimate politeness to not have to read as much. That's a very fair point. And I think sometimes I spend too long writing an email. <laughs> So this article does not just raise a problem without a solution. It gives you a few concrete strategies to respond to these email situations. First one is don't respond to messages or emails when you're angry or frustrated. If an email is triggering for you and you are getting consistently frustrated by the emails that you're receiving, not a great sign that you're in a particularly healthy work environment. Very true. You may not have a choice about that. You shouldn't actually be consistently angry and frustrated with every email that you're getting, right? <laughs> if you are, then you might need to take a bit of a break or find a role that isn't so full of conflict. If you had no choice, let's mm -hmm. say you were in conflict resolution and your emails were like about child safety, like every email you get is about another endangered child or another case of some kind of criminal act. Right, okay. When you get those emails and they listed those negative emotions, uh, don't respond straight, straight away. away. How long would you wait if you received an email that made you angry, which hopefully again is not every single email? 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Know. Is that that's, too long? That's not long at all. 30, you can you can calm down from your anger in 30 minutes. That's, yeah, you're a very zen person. You're more zen than me. I walk away and have a cup of tea and then... I walk away and have a cup of tea. Cup have a cup and that's a 30 minute tea break <laughs> so i guess if, <laughs> if you're getting a constant barrage of rude emails there's a lot of tea breaks i leave it overnight if i have the capability to i leave it overnight if it were in the afternoon then i think that's fair i'd try and do it the same day so if it came in the morning and try and respond in the afternoon Ooh, late okay. afternoon maybe overnight you have uh, skipped ahead to the fourth strategy oh, here which is avoid digital ghosting mm -hmm. in that if you can respond to it within 60 seconds mm -hmm. then do so the danger in that is that it's like you're on a messenger live chatting with them if they have more than one query so my rule of thumb is i will respond to two or three back and forths in the moment and then it's going to have to wait 
Okay. That 60 second rule applies unless the same person emails me three times in mm-hmm. that span. And I've got to call it quits. I don't have time to be responding to one person's queries all the time. There's a lot of different things going on day to day for me. So I try and respond straight away where I can so I don't forget about it later. And then my other strategy is to mark something as unread if I don't have time then to respond to it to make sure it keeps appearing in my inbox. The email client that I use and most of us use is Outlook mm-hmm. and Outlook, you can flag emails, a little red flag. It has lost all meaning to me. I've <laughs> so many flagged emails. I do not care if it's flagged or not. I don't care if it's urgent or not unless I see it in 60 seconds. Only barometer is have I read it yet or not? So I do what you do as well. What if it has a little exclamation mark next to it? Oh, that's the urgent. That's mm-hmm. the high priority. Yeah. But unless it is unread, it is of no consequence to me at this point, right? I get so many emails. Nothing to you. It means nothing, <laughs> nothing. to me. It barely raises a blip on my radar. But that's because I receive so many emails. If I mm. get 10 a day, then I'll read everything. But I, I get like 150 a day sometimes, right? There's a few other strategies here, but the one I want to end on is, is this one. I think this is an important point that you have partially explained why you are quite zen is that most of the faux pas didn't seem to offend you much. And it's because you assume good intent. You assume the sender is not passive aggressive or not trying to needle you not only will you be less likely to be constantly needing tea breaks to calm down from being angry but it just makes your working life a little smoother if you assume good intent you're less likely to be passive aggressive in your response and that person doesn't have to assume the best of you they will just see the best of you in every interaction power dynamics are different Mm. in every work environment for some people maybe they need to fight back with even more confrontation to assert their structure or their hierarchy in the workplace if you were like a lawyer negotiating over clients say you couldn't then back down because that would be a sign of weakness. Mm. We are in a profession where the ego is, of course, there, but it doesn't really help the cause. You can be super confident, but your experiment's still going to fail. You know, like the ego doesn't really help when you it know, comes to that. In my job, I often need things from people and it's a lot easier to get things when you're friendly. Again, you're, you're showing your cards as to why you've been thriving or surviving in a professional <laughs> environment. You're friendly, you have good intent, but it's different. Maybe surviving. <laughs> it's different for everyone. Mm. But I think no one enjoys receiving poorly thought out emails and it all comes down to communication. Mm-hmm. My main takeaways are assume good intent like you have consistently, be more polite than you have to be and be brief. If I have to read less, even if I get a lot of emails, they're to the point, they're well-constructed, it's very clear what is asked of me that I'm more likely to respond. Mm-hmm. All fair points, I think. Okay, and with that, that brings us to the end of not only Whose Job Is Anyway, but of this episode of the podcast. That concludes episode nine. The next episode will be the final episode of season one of Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne. You can find all of the previous episodes, including this one on the YouTube channel, as well as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can listen to all the archive as well as my Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne newsletter in the links and show notes below. I'm Jack. And I'm Amanda. Hope to connect with you again next time around.